The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. it going everybody welcome to the show it is time for break the business where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way i'm ryan carella and it is a pleasure to have you here this week we got ourselves a fine program this week viewers and listeners i'm so excited to bring it to you we got great conversations great entertainment news we are going to be empowering indie creators in every sense of the word this week i'm excited for what we got going up Coming up in just a little bit, I'm going to bring him on in just a second. We're kind of flipping the format around a little bit this week because I want to open the show this week with our guest. We're going to bring him on in a bit. His name is Michael Malden. He is the co-founder of the Black American Music Association. He's going to tell us about the uh, a really great award show that's coming up, the inaugural ICE Medal of Honor celebration, paying tribute to the legends within Black American music. Really powerful discussion terrific record executive legendary record executive michael malden and is going to have a lot of insight for us to me what he is is living history within black american music the stories that he's surely going to have about some of the biggest names of of the music that i love artists like alicia keys artists like destiny's child he's going to have a lot of great stories for those about those folks he's got a lot of going to have a lot of great info for us. Maybe we can get a few kind of behind the scenes stories, what it was like in the early days for Destiny's Child and Alicia Keys. Maybe he'll have some of those nuggets for us. So stick around. That's going to be a blast. We're going to find out a lot about his work. He's going to give us some great advice. We're going to find out about the Black American Music Association and the ICE Medal of Honor celebration that's coming up in June. It's going to be great. Before we bring him in, though, uh, something else I'd like to do for us, viewers and listeners, is just give a little quick... Uh, a quick teaser to something that we're going to be announcing in the next couple weeks. We have a big show announcement that's going to be coming up. We're going to really uh, explain it a lot over the next few episodes. But before we do, um, I just wanted to kind of tease it and let you all know that we're going to have a huge new addition to the Break the Business live streaming lineup. We're in discussions right now. It's in the works. We're not ready to announce it yet. But just know that in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have a huge announcement on the live streaming front. We're really excited for it. It's going to really grow the footprint of this program, really bring some great resources into what we're doing. And I'm really excited about this. And I want to bring it up now just because I want to say this really cool thing that we're going to announce in the next couple of weeks does not happen without all of you viewers and listeners, the support you've given to this program over the years and just everything that you have just given to this show, this great community you've helped us build, you're the reason why this really cool thing that we're not going to announce for a couple of weeks is coming to fruition. So mwah, thanks very much for all that you do and for the great community we're building. Uh, before we bring in our guest, uh, I don't want to interview the guest alone. Let's get our co-host in here, uh, investor, musician, frontman for Gideon King and City Blog. Gideon King is here. Hi, Gideon. Howdy, howdy, howdy. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. I wonder if we can pot him up a little bit, producer Lauren. Uh, he's got really great insight for to share with us, and we want to make sure we hear every word of it. Uh, <laughs> was StreamYard giving you some grief on the way in here, Gideon? Dude, can you hear me better now? Um, I do hear you, yes. Well, yeah. I mean, technology is against me. Um, it, and I don't know. It's I, I'm fighting technology, and I'm losing. But, but your producer... Um, calm me down. I was throwing things. Um, I was throwing, I was throwing things against the wall and cursing modern times, but she, she gave me, you know, she gave me some drugs and she calmed me down. That's so on brand for you, Gideon King, not the drugs <laughs> part, although it might be, I don't know what you do when you're, uh, <laughs> no. in your alone time, but just <laughs> no. the idea of you fighting technology. I feel like yeah. you bring that every week on this show. Just you as a musician being angry about something that technology is doing to the work that you're doing. And now technology is taking revenge on you hating it. Right now, as you're trying to do this podcast, I wholeheartedly reject change. Let me put it that way. <laughs> well, you know what? Maybe we just need to build some like really 
impressive state-of-the-art studio facility and we'll just come to like a physical building and do the show together the way they used to do radio in the old days yes well you know i'm living in miami now so we could actually we could actually do that Let's, uh, you know, we got to make that happen. You know, Sirius XM just built a really amazing state-of-the-art facility over in Miami Beach in your neck of the woods. Maybe we just got to park ourselves there and not leave this to too much technology and chance. I got a lot of stuff to talk to you about, Gideon, but let's put a pin in that because I'd love to do the interview first since I did promise that to the viewers and listeners. Let's go ahead and bring out our guest this week and we can chat with him together, Gideon. He is a celebrated music executive who helped launch artists like Destiny's Child and Alicia Keys. Today, among other roles, he is the co-founder of the Black American Music Association, who in June will be holding its inaugural ICE Medal of Honor celebration, paying tribute to the legends within black music. This year's medal recipients include Alicia Keys, Grandmaster Flash, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis, and more. We are happy to welcome Michael Malden on to Break the Business. Hello, Michael. Hey, good evening. Good evening. How you doing? It is a pleasure to be chatting with you, sir. We are both all smiles getting to talk to you. As I mentioned in the beginning, I feel like we're talking to living history right now when it comes to American music. The legends that have passed through your doors as you were heading up uh, Columbia Records and the Black Music Division. All these, the biggest names, the biggest household names in music um, have all uh, worked, have, have been across from your desk at one time or another. And uh, excited for the stories that you have to tell. But let me ask you this to start things off. Of the many incredible artists that you've worked with as the former president of the Black Music Division of Columbia Records, who was an artist that from the very moment you heard them sing a single note or from the very moment you laid eyes on them, you were positive that that artist was going to be a superstar? Wow. Um, well, first of all, I, I am um, happy that you asked that. Um, and I know you mentioned her name, and I'm not saying it just because you did, but Alicia Keys is probably one of those artists. Um, and, and a lot of folks, you know, whether it's to my credit or others, a lot of folks didn't quite get her in the beginning, but it was just something that was unique that took me back in time. Um, you know, uh, a female at a keyboard, was, which was her thing. Um, you know, she used to do a lot of cover songs when I met her, like she'd do a lot of male cover songs like Stevie Wonder and different people and folks would say, well, what is the record going to be like? And it was a, a, um, a work that we just passionately went towards. And yeah, she, she proved to be that and then some, right. Um, you know, just really without a doubt being that I put my hands on her, um, you know, at the top of her career, it was very special for me. Well, I got to go back to something you said at the beginning there, Michael. You're telling me that when Alicia Keys started at your organization, there were voices of dissent at the label who didn't think she was going to be a star. Because, like, look, I, and this might be me saying these things in hindsight, but the first time I heard Fallen, like within 10 seconds, like I, I knew I was listening to a legend. It is slap you in the face obvious to me yeah. that Alicia Keys is a transcendent figure in music you're telling me at columbia records there are people who are like i don't know yeah unfortunately so and and, and it just and it and she would probably tell you it kind of continues as a lot of um yeah it's it, the music business and the entertainment business is kind of weird that way people are looking for that next and they want to find but usually they wanted to replicate something that they've heard or something mm-hmm. that's currently going on and alicia just kind of broke the mold and for me uh, that's what I was all about when I went to Columbia. So I signed Alicia there in 19, um, whoo, sounds old, 1996. Yeah, you and, started it with 19. Ooh, that's bad sign. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, just the, the idea of what we were doing and trying to find that particular song and that particular direction, it took a minute. Uh, but the truth of the matter is it was all about finding the song. The talent and the style and her approach to accompanying herself with keyboards and stuff was always there for me and um you know i just i just jumped in foot first and made sure that we gave her all the resources she needed to be the artist that she became so we're excited about that that's tremendous well now let me ask you the opposite question yes was there an artist that when they first came in you weren't sure about because maybe the song wasn't there or maybe they still had some developing to do and it turned out that they uh, overcame your expectations and wound up being a big figure in music. Well, this one's may really surprise you. So when I first got to Columbia, I went and um, by way of an A&R executive, which was in Texas, 
told me about these um, young females. Oh, no, 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 and no, 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 don't tell I, me. No, no, I went and you probably heard the story uh, been told that, you know, the girls that went swimming or something. And I'm talking about Destiny's Child. Yeah, they, no, we they wouldn't call Destiny's Child at that time. And the executive came in and, you know, they didn't get signed. Well, I did not immediately push the button on them. I was very interested in them, but what we, to me, it was, they were there, they were almost too polished. Uh, I kind of loved, I'm kind of the guy that loves the, the roughness, the roll around the edges and then, you know, shining it up kind of like a diamond uh, in the rough. But I knew that they had it. And it. we probably did not sign them at Columbia for another year after I went down and first visited. But we kept getting calls, and Teresa, uh, who was one of the A&R folks, kept insisting and brought them to New York and had them do a showcase for me and the rest of the company. And we kind of signed it on the spot at that point because they had really, to my point, had taken the position, you know, really made it a real positive move over the past, ever how long it was. So, sorry. Oh, see, that was actually Beyonce calling you right now, wondering why you passed on her the first time. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm trying to remember what that their name was when they started. Wasn't it like Girls Time or something like yeah, it was that? Girls Time and, and at that point in time it was working with Smother but but here's the trick. I'm such a dork for knowing that. Oh no, you're really right. It was girls time, but then when we did when they got signed, they were destiny. They weren't destiny's child. Oh, and so yeah. it was another group in Europe um that was called Destiny. And I got a call one day from Beyonce's father, Matthew, who managed them, saying, Michael, you heard that from Business Affairs, they're saying we got to change the name or something. And I'm like, oh, no, we can't do that. So I love the name. And honest to God, I don't know where the name came from, but I kind of dreamed up the name, ideally, and just mentioned one day, well, I think it, maybe it should be Destiny Child. And I remember somebody said, shouldn't it be Destiny's Children? You know, Child is like one person or whatever. <laughs> and this is real a real story, and I'm sure you know the girls could verify all this. And uh, I, um, of course, I'm you know head of the head of Black Music there, and uh, they went along with the idea, and now Destiny Child was born, and we came out the gate really doing some amazing stuff, and did a remix with Wyclef Jean, which was also on our label with the Fugees, and of No No No, and that kind of just shot it out the. Uh, atmosphere oh my gosh i i don't want to steal all of his time getting you must have a thousand questions for him i could talk to him forever but uh, i do want to introduce you uh, michael or co-host gideon king um, who i know is enjoying these stories just as much as i am you, you know what it's almost like i don't have a question it's like a question slash comment slash um celebration of something i grew up michael in new york city and my brother was a prodigy truly a prodigy jazz musician and uh, played with Dizzy Gillespie when he was 11 years old, toured with Josh Red, toured with Josh Redman. So I grew up in my house hearing McCoy Tyner and Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea and so on. And I think that like one of the things that is celebrated, but maybe under celebrated uh, when it comes to the, the contribution of the black community to music, is music theory. Now yeah. I'm a jazz I'm a jazz musician lifelong, and I won't make this a big long speech, Ryan. Otherwise, you know, Ryan's going to fire me if I talk too long. So <laughs> I'll make it. I'll make it quick. I already f technology. I might I might as well go quick. But you know, the thing is, is that I grew up studying jazz theory, and I still study it every single day. And that all came for me from listening to Dexter Gordon and McCoy Tyner and Herbie and Ron Carter and Wayne Shorter. And I could just sit here now and name, I'm not kidding, I think I could name 2000 people. Um, and so, you know, we think about, about Alicia Keys and we think about Prince and we think about, but for me, and I'm just sharing this with you and, and Ryan and anybody who, who's not asleep with me talking here, for me, my, my sort of, my tie to those, those folks is insanely strong. I grew up with that theory. I worship that theory every day. I today, I today was transcribing uh, early Charlie Parker stuff, just just figuring some shit out on guitar. And so, I guess I would just like to add to the conversation that beyond these these gigantic names like Alicia Keys, there are people like you know 
like um, Dexter Gordon and, 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 and Joe Henderson, okay, okay. That, yes. that inform everything that her does today, that Prince did. Trust me, when Alicia Keys lays out a G major seven, you know, a G major nine, okay, that's coming from those folks. That's coming from John Coltrane. Yeah. And so I'm only bringing it up because I think it's important. Yeah. Um, and because I think that intellectual contribution to the very blood and guts of every freaking song we hear is wildly important. I mean, it's like it's like biochemistry to being a doctor. Yeah, no doubt about it. First of all, I appreciate it. And I, I had no idea, uh, you know, with you coming on, I saw your name earlier. Uh, but, you know, kudos to your involvement and your family and all. Yeah, listen, it's, it's crazy because I have an organization that I'm chair called the Black American Music Association. Mm -hmm. The idea of that organization is, you know, going back and honestly celebrating the last 100 years of Black American music. That started in 2021, really. Dude. So really now we're like 103 years, I guess. But the truth of the matter is, if you go back to um, 1921, and the whole Harlem Renaissance era, and you go and you move that forward and you look, I mean, there was a, um, a record label in New York called Black Swan, um, mm. you know, lasted for a couple of years, went bankrupt, and, yeah, and bought it up. Yeah, so much to be said for those artists, you know, when you talk about artists like Ron Carter and, and some of those other artists that really has contributed big time to our music society and mainstream music today, particularly in the world of hip hop and all too, because people are going back and sampling a lot Absolutely. of jazz and licks and then putting them in music. And then all of a sudden you hear it on Drake or whomever it may be and think, oh my God, that's amazing. And all right. you have to do is go and pull out your vinyl and you'll dig in the crates way back and find something. Yes. So yes. For us at the, um, we call it the Bama Association, Black American mm -hmm. Music Association. Our idea is to lift and 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 preserve and protect the, our our legacy as well as the next generation and those that you know. It's not so much about. I call it a love affair with music. We mm -hmm. all have it if we're music. You know, if we have a love for just the arts in general. But the truth of the matter is, there's a lot of folks and a lot of artists that uh, and producers and writers that just never got their flowers, that oh, just yeah. never got their acknowledgement. So our organization is all about doing that. And uh, I know, you know, that's what we're setting out to do in a big way. At the same time, it starts in the community. It starts with the culture. It starts with the, the listeners as well. It's, yeah. it's just like Ryan saying, okay, I, I can't believe somebody didn't hear Alicia Keys. Well, sometimes somebody's got to move that, and push that, and put it into place for people to hear, to really understand, uh, you know, what it's all about. So we're proud to be that organization to help people recognize it. And one of the major initiatives of the Black American Music Association is the Ice Medal of Honor ceremony. You're going to have your inaugural ceremony in June to honor uh, legends in Black American music. Uh, your first crop of recipients for this award are going to be Alicia Keys, Grandmaster Flash, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis, and more. Can you tell us a little bit more about this award? Yeah, basically we, we view it as an honors program and it's kind of what we're talking about now. It's the, we're also, we're gonna do, um, now this is an interesting Gideon, we're gonna do uh, Robert Kuhn Bell and give him a lifetime achievement doing this same ceremony. And obviously he's with Cool in the Gang. Most people would know him as Cool in the Gang, but you think about sure. and all those songs, but Cool and the Gang was a jazz band. Oh, yeah. If you think back to the era of where they, so as far as the different genres and just what, Absolutely. and who is the only um, original remaining member. And we were just thinking about it as our board and said, like, man, this, this brother, this person deserves all the acknowledgement. A lot of times, again, people like him come and go in a way in our business. And as we all get older and do what we do, the next generation don't really think about it unless someone like us uncover it and shine it off. So that's really, again, what we're doing with the Medal of Honor, bringing mm -hmm. people up. Like we're honoring, uh, the person that was actually trying to call my phone was Suzanne DePass. Suzanne DePass was the first female president of a, a black female president of a production company. She was with Motown. She really is the one 
that dealt with the Jacksons all the time, worked hand in hand with Barry Gordy. So we are also acknowledging and honoring her with a Trailblazer Award because she broke the way for a lot of not just black blacks, but also just a lot of females in general way back in the day. So our our acknowledgement is both folks that did records and did production, but also those that work behind the scene to really make a difference. And again, and, and again, just to just to jump in and, and almost harp on the concept again, like cool in the gang, right? Like um, or Earth, Wind and Fire. Those folks, they made it okay to put harmony, true harmony, and theoretically correct harmony, yeah, to a groove, right. And 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 I'm just telling you that if you talk to Donald Fagan from Steely Dan, okay, he's gonna say Earth, Wind, and Fire, the song you know can't buy can't buy love, okay. He's gonna say. The horn stabs in that tune, stabs are like, you know, Ryan horn stabs are like bop, bop, like horns, like those horn stabs and the, the chordal structure of those horns, that came from these guys. Yeah. And so it's like, it's just like, I don't, I don't think I can emphasize enough how important it was to build those bridges and people like Cool and the Gang, Earth, Wind and Fire, Parliament and Funkadelic, man, there's, you know, the spinners, okay? Yeah. Like, like, like it's, that was a bridge that was built between funky, cool music that people would like, but still remaining harmonically cool. And that's, that's cool. that, that for me is what, yeah. you know, is what makes all of this so cool. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and again, we, we applaud all that. Uh, it's so funny because someone asked me one time, Michael, why do y'all call it black American music? This is not about race creed. It's about an art form. And it's an art form that people love. And one of the first people that I heard call it Black American music was the late Ahmet Erdogan, who, used, who was in Atlantic Records. And then also the great jazz musician Bob James. And the crazy part about it, neither one of those men are Black. But yeah, they yeah. called it Black American music. They were one of the first ones that I recognized and said, that's really the core base of our music in America today. And people just don't recognize it. And and when we call it black music, like I said, a lot of people think about race, think about the colors of your skin. No, it is truly an art form where all these other genres, whether it's blues, whether it's jazz, whether it's rhythm and blues, whether it's, you know, funk, whatever fits with inside of. And, and we also look at ourselves as helping to educate um, a lot of people today, executives included, but as well as the next generation coming up. And it was too dangerous, guys. It was too dangerous to call it black. Louis Armstrong couldn't come out and say that. That's exactly right. Right, right. right. Art Tatum, the fastest piano player who has ever lived, okay, right. um, who, is, who is a black, still to this day, the fastest piano player who has ever, he couldn't say that. Wow. So it's only in the last number of decades where you could actually come out and say the radioactive words of black music. You know yeah. what I mean? It, yeah. That was there's there was no way Dexter Gordon was going to say that in 1967. In fact, some of those guys did say that shit, and that's why they ended up in Paris because they couldn't because yeah. they because they could because you couldn't say that stuff in the states. But anyway, I digress. I digress. No, no, that's a whole other conversation, Gideon. I, I appreciate that, man. You know, Ryan and everybody had to give you my number, man. We need to connect and just talk about it because that's a whole nother. It is. I, I would actually like to get your perspective on that, Michael, just in the time that you've been an executive. So certainly right. not going back to the very beginning of black American music, but just in your time, can you talk about how much the industry has changed culturally, how black artists have been treated yeah. since when you started and since today? Cause like, I mean, I remember in my lifetime and you know, I'm not, you know, that old, you know, MTV didn't play black artists for a while. Like the, you know, the, it took them a couple of years before they even played like a black hip hop artist on right. that. And that was MTV. Like that was the eighties. So can you just reflect on how far things have come just in the time that you've been working in the industry? Yeah. Well, I've been in the industry a good little while. Uh, and, uh, but to your point, all of that is real. I mean, MTV's first real black artist that they played MTV now, you know, and I'm just not knocking anybody was Michael Jackson when he did the whole beat it thing. If y'all remember, that was in like 19, whatever, 84, 83. And if I remember correctly, um, CBS records had to squeeze MTV pretty hard 
oh, to play time. Michael Jackson. They told MTV, if you don't play Michael Jackson, you won't, you can't play any CBS artist. That's and exactly that made, right. and that caused it to finally move forward. That's exactly right. And it's crazy that, you know, then I came along and worked at CBS and all, uh, or not CBS, but basically Columbia Records and that Sony movement, which was all part of the same. And then I also managed and found a young artist, uh, when you talk about hip hop, called Arrested Development. Arrested Development was the first hip hop band to really get played significantly on MTV with a song called Tennessee, which just happened to be a, a print sample that we put yeah. in there. But uh, that was, and that wasn't until 1993, 92, 1992. And so when you, yeah, it was just to, to, to Gideon's point, it's a, it's a deep conversation because there were struggles even to this day in, in music, in the music companies about quote unquote black music. Is it black music or is it urban music? Is yeah, it exactly. right. And really the whole urban thing is a promotional driven property, you know, which was about how to get records played on the radio and depending on certain markets and where they were at and, you know, and who was gonna take the record into the radio station, you know, and as crazy as all that sounds, we like to think that we're progressing as a country and as what we do, but to be honest with you, there are still those uh, loopholes that uh, exist that makes it a little difficult to just, you know, be open with everything. So to Gideon's point, a lot of artists back in the uh, 50s and 60s, now there was one artist particularly, uh, James Brown, who really <laughs> pushed the envelope hard. He caught a lot of flack with it, but you know, said loud, I'm black and I'm proud. I mean, he really pushed the fact of, which brought in to some degree a racial push, but the truth be told, he was just speaking loud as a man for who he was and saying, accept me for how I am, accept my records for how they are. But I just think that, you know, I, uh, the late Tony Bennett used to talk about it all the time and he was at Columbia Records and, you know, I had a chance to know him and spend time with him. And he used to talk about how great this music was, but how hard it was for, artists to fully represent themselves and getting to your point sometimes it was easier for tony to talk about black american music and it being black artists and having these different musicians and stuff around him than it would be the artists themselves mm -hmm. uh, and i i do think that you know that obviously has loosened up a lot as far as what it is i think hip-hop has really influenced a lot um as far as getting the young folks involved but my problem with that is that the young folks are not educated on what we're talking about right now and it just feels like to me somebody and maybe ryan is your program somebody's got to talk about stuff like this on an ongoing basis and I not mean, stir up stuff but to I mean, educate people you know you know one one thing i would say ryan some of the greatest and 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 michael some of the greatest interviews of all time are the Dick Cavett interviews with a great pioneering piano player named Oscar Peterson. Okay. Oscar Peterson is one of the great jazz pianists who's ever lived. He was a, he was a super smooth, crazy, articulate, double-handed, crazy piano player. And here is what was fascinating about the Oscar Petersons and the Duke Ellingtons. And, and that paved the way for the Snoop Dogs of the world. In a, in a very important, but I think unknown way. When you saw the faces of people, the faces, the, the look on their faces, okay, people who had an idea that there was no way there was going to be an articulate black man or black woman. And then this guy shows up on Dick Cavett speaking fluid, beautiful English and killing it intellectually on the piano. Double-handed, crazy harmonic shit, crazy. Okay, those are some of the most fascinating moments to me in music history. When you see the Duke interviewed, you see Oscar Peterson interviewed, you see those guys because there was this dumbfounded look of broken expectations on the part of the audience because they were like, who are these people speaking so well? We, that's not what we want to hear. We want to hear a black person show up and sound terrible and Thank sound in, and sound inarticulate. And yeah. in many ways, I believe those moments, A, elucidated the truth, but also severely pissed off a lot of people. Yeah. And, and in many ways prevented the Oscar Petersons from even being more mainstream. 
And I give I give Dick Cavett a lot of, of, of credit because those were some of the most seminal moments of introducing these harmonic geniuses to the world in a very open and flowing way. I, I would urge any listener here and anybody in the world to watch those interviews. They're some of the most beautiful moments in music history. That's really profound, Gideon, and I, I love the insight there. And I mean, the only thing I would say is, uh, you know, in, in our our, in our quest to uh, continue to keep the Gen Z crowd interested in this program, I think we need more Dick Cavett references. Yeah, sorry, I know, I know, but you know, history. But history is important. It's just important. It really is. Yeah. I say no it all question. the time. You got to you got to acknowledge the history to inspire the future. But somebody's got to tell it, right? Somebody's right. got to because I do believe. And when you say that, Ryan, in all honesty, I do believe the Gen Z and everyone. It's just a yeah. Most of these kids today don't really, they don't really care. Well, they don't even want to think about it, right? Even some of them that are trying to be musicians and stuff. But I feel like these types of stories is necessary. And it's not about trying to bring, you know, the 80s and 90s back. But it is also, it is definitely about recognizing that so that we'll understand where we're going. Uh, and that that is important. Um, and that really is a really important mission of your organization. I'm thrilled that we have organizations like the Black American Music Association that are showing us where we've come from and why we are where we are and continuing to illuminate these very prominent figures in American music, but also some of the unsung heroes that deserve a little more attention. And, you know, that really sounds like the purpose of the uh, ICE Medal of Honor ceremony for the people who are intrigued about this event, want to learn more about it. That's because it's coming up in June. What can they do to learn more? Well, you can definitely go to uh, the Black American Music Association dot org or it's Black AMA dot org. Um, and you can also go right now. Our, our Medal of Honor is taking place at the Ray Charles Performing Arts Center in Atlanta, Georgia. And as you mentioned, that is going to be on uh, June 2nd. Um, and, and also, let me say, uh, in regards to that, we also have something that we call the Black, um, Black Music and Entertainment Walk of Fame, which is also in Atlanta, Georgia, down by Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And it's kind of like a Walk of Fame, similar to the Hollywood Walk of Fame, but it is about these artists and these executives that, again, we can give their we can shine their star right now. And so we're actually placing them, uh, have been going on for like the last three years. Right now there's about 50 different ones that are in, that are embedded there in the sidewalks of MLK Junior Drive in Atlanta. Um, and people, when you're in Atlanta, if you're down uh, by the stadium down there, please go by and take a look, it's truly amazing. And those artists vary uh, from, you know, way back when to, you know, to most recently, like Beyonce is in down there on the sidewalks. And so, uh, and it, of course that gets voted in like everything else. You still got committees and all to try to put it in. But, but the realities are, we're just trying to do some good as they would say in the neighborhood and make a difference on the long term. And one thing I really want to put emphasis on and Gideon, maybe you can help us do this somewhere. We got to get music back in our classrooms or we got to figure out a way to get music free to kids that they can really have access to it because that's why you don't really see no bands. That's why you don't really see there's very few guys anymore that's, that's able to, you know, I have, a, play. I have a ton. I got a ton of friends in New York city. One guy ran, you know, who's played with every, everybody from Aretha Franklin to, to Sean Mendez. He's my drummer in my band beautiful drummer and he's he's all about that and he was head of the louis armstrong house in new york bringing bringing hip-hop to, to young kids but also bringing music theory to kids so that's a big that's a big that's a big discussion you got to get music in the hands of kids it makes them safer if you really it does that. it does it really does so i i just i i mean i applaud i applaud this show ryan i applaud what you guys are doing for you know just for creators and people that want to move the needle uh, you know big time uh i think you gotta you gotta you gotta open it up and i really appreciate you having me on here and and having a chance to kind of share what we're doing with the medal of honor and what we're doing with the um the association itself matter of fact the association there will be a membership drive which starts this year uh for the association so that's also something very prominent there is a foundational part and and both of those are nonprofit organizations uh, the association of 501c6 very similar to naris 
and our foundation of the 501c3. And um, we just want support and we want people that really, again, have a love affair with music. That's fantastic. Our guest has been Michael Malden, celebrated music executive and co-founder of the Black American Music Association. Michael, this has been a treat. Thank you so much for hanging out with us, uh, walking us through the history, giving us some great stories along the way. Before we let you go, though, we got one last question for you. Do you have any last tips for the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? Uh, yeah, I would. I honestly do. Um, I deal with a lot of youth um, and I see kids now, particularly as Gideon was talking about, you know, me, social media or talking about uh, electronic and digital and all that stuff. Um, kids think it's easy. You gotta be passionate. You gotta be patient. You gotta really want it. You gotta have a love for it. Don't, don't just try to run out and make a bunch of money. You can probably get to that, but you first and foremost, you've got to have passion. And I would just say if you if you have interest, and that's not just music, that's anything as relates to art and the creative side of it. I just believe uh, that putting in the work, rolling up the sleeves and sticking with it is the best thing that I can tell you. Rehearse is hard, practice is hard, do whatever you can do as hard as it is when you even when you're up in front of an audience trying to show and tell from that standpoint. Always put your best foot forward and you'll keep moving in the right direction. Um, that's where I, that's, that's what I've done with my career. And, and a lot of, and I've suggested for a lot of folks that I've guided and helped guide uh, through their career as well. And it seems to be working pretty good. Seems to be working out for you and the artists that you've helped along the way. Michael, thank you so much for joining us this week. We're going to take a two-minute break, and I'll come back with Gideon King to talk more about some stories this week. Don't go anywhere. Keep checking out Break the Business. And you can follow the show at The Beat. Break the Business is presented in cooperation with Ryan A. Corella, PA. Ryan A. Corella, PA is a law firm providing transactional entertainment legal services, including contracts, business formation, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Ryan A. Corella, PA, Miami, Florida, rkpalaw.com. Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the program, everybody. Thank you all so much for checking out Break the Business. Ryan Corelli here with Gideon King on all major streaming platforms, podcast platforms, and Sirius XM 145, wherever you're checking us out. Oh, man, are we just so glad that you are. Gideon, were you as blown away by the Michael Malden conversation as I was? I mean, he's just one of those people that radiates positivity. I, I don't know how else to say it. He's just kind of, you know, he's just radiating positivity. Um, and so uh, he's just cool. I don't know what Absolutely. else to say. He's, He's super cool. cool. And as much as I do, as much as I can't resist the opportunity to make a joke about a old musty Dick Cavett reference, I do appreciate the greater narrative that you and Michael were talking about how the young people are losing sight of history and are not understanding where music's come from. And you can't really appreciate where music is today without respecting the journey, especially when you're talking about black American music and all of the obstacles and all of the barbed wire that those musicians had to crawl through for decades, for generations to yeah. put the whole music industry where it is today. They broke. This is why I went back 
even though I know it's not as relevant as you know, m- m- you know, mentioning um, Justin Bieber, I just I just had to say it because they broke all the rules, but they knew all the rules before they broke all the rules. John Coltrane and 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 those guys. I can't underscore enough for any listener here. In fact, I'm sure our listeners know, but I can't underscore enough how insanely intelligent that music was. It was mind-blowingly complex beyond any classical theory I've ever looked at. And I've looked at a shit ton of classical theory. And to this day, I study it endlessly in all of modern music teaching at every music school is, is, is still trying to figure out what the hell John Coltrane was doing. And so we just we just all owe him whether it's Alicia Keys or 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 you know whether it was Whitney Houston when we she was doing her thing like they just all owe it to those those people who broke free from certain shackles in music and and articulately both musically and otherwise delivered something bigger better more complex and cooler so sorry to take us back in time but I, I actually couldn't resist. And I don't regret it. Well, thank goodness we have people like you and like Michael Malden to give us that rich narrative and to make sure we don't lose sight of it. Because, yeah, I will fully confess, I would not have had the bandwidth and had the you know stuff in my brain to be able to take Michael Malden down memory lane the way that you did. And we were all yeah, better man, cool people stuff. for it. Yeah, yeah, cool yes, stuff. Super good stuff. Um, I do want to go over one news story with you before we close this week, because when I saw this story, I was like, I bet Gideon King bringing his music and his business background to bear would have some pretty interesting thoughts on this. And when I, of course, and when I, when I think of a prominent black American music, I of course think of James Vanderbeek, which is this story is about, <laughs> um, <laughs> on January 19th. A Los Angeles Superior Court judge dismissed a lawsuit against Sirius XM, alleging that they reneged on a $700,000 podcast deal with actor James Vanderbeek. In the lawsuit, Vanderbeek claimed that the audio giant reached a deal with him over emails to host 40 podcast episodes, or for him to host 40 podcast episodes. But the judge in the case held that Sirius XM never actually formed a contract with the actor, and so Sirius XM was free to walk away from the deal which they did in 2022. Uh, a couple pretty interesting takeaways that I got from this. One, I didn't know SiriusXM was paying anybody $700,000. I feel like we are being grossly underpaid on this particular platform. Absolutely. I got to go talk with some people at SiriusXM, or I need to you know, be on Dawson's Creek for a few seasons totally, and, you know, totally. and Varsity Blues, and then we'll get that you know, big six-figure money. But totally. the other main takeaway from this that I think is an interesting one, and it's one that lawyers often confront with, and I know in, in the Wall Street world and the music world you confront with it too, is... When do emails become a contract? When is a contract a contract? Because um, it's never, you know, obviously when something is says that it's a contract and it says that it's binding and it's got all the fancy legal terms in it and everybody signs it and it's notarized, that's a contract. But what a lot of people don't know is you can fall far short of that formalized document and still get something that is a contract that you are bound to. You don't even need something in writing a lot of the time to create a contract. But knowing when you have a contract and when you don't have a contract and what you need to actually have something that's legally binding is a really important lesson for entertainers because you're going to have a lot of situations where you're discussing a deal with somebody over email. And when do those emails become something that's actually a binding contractual obligation? In this Vanderbeek case, it didn't quite get there. But a lot of times it can. I'm sure you've come across different versions of this in your career in business and entertainment, Gideon. Yeah, like every day, um, <laughs> you know, there is obviously this incredible difference between a promise to work with another party and a contractual obligation to do so. And I guess what I would say, you know, you always say at the end of the show, what's your advice for people? Okay, my advice for anyone listening would be to assume it simply isn't a contract until you have a binding fully fleshed out document and the reason i say that is whether you're buying a building in chicago or you're signing a record label deal there are stages that get to a to a contractual arrangement you know there's discussion there's emails people even say oh well i already bought chairs for your office 
who cares, right? Oh, I think we lost Gideon there. Hopefully, we'll bring him back again. Mind, quote unquote. Oh, there no, he is. Term, oh, did you did you lose me? We lost you for a few seconds, but you're back now. Oh, sorry. So I guess what I would say, and I don't know, maybe I'm repeating myself and, and, and everybody lost me, but I guess what I would say is there are stages to get to a contract. There's discussion. There's a letter of intent. There's even binding letters of intent in some way. There are definitive agreements. And then there's the final contract. So if you're an artist out there or if you're buying a bike, bicycle store or a pizza place, okay, know that the odds are you don't have a contract until it says this is a binding contract and if we have disputes this is how we're going to fight about it in front of an arbitrator or a court know where the contract is construed meaning what kind of venue uh, people are going to settle your arguments in but do not at any stage and i actually thought the plaintiff in this case because i actually did finally read the document was downright silly which explains why it was you know, it was dismissed in the summary judgment. But like, I guess what I would say is for artists out there, or for anyone, do not let the exuberance of the moment and people saying, well, we already have your office ready. Oh, dude, we already have artists lined up for you to work with. And we're done. The, the words we're done mean nothing. Okay. They generally mean nothing in my multi-decade experience of doing deals. What means something is a binding contract executed by both sides with counsel advising clients on both sides. It's just really sad because the emotions of the moment cause people to say all kinds of definitive things which they don't have to live up to. So what I would just sort of suggest to people is stay calm, get there with a full contract if you can, establish that it's a full contract. And in this case, Come on, man. There were multiple times when it was clear to the plaintiff that there were documents yet to be negotiated. So like that, that was just like, I thought that like plaintiff and that lawsuit was like, come on. It, it was, it was kind of, it was kind of a joke. And by the way, one more thing for, for people, for the teachable moments that, that you're always looking for at the end of the show. And you ask our, you know, people, what advice do you have? My, my other piece of advice is once you do have a contract, do not be surprised if the other side does not perform on that contract. So what I'm saying is even when you have a contract, people don't live up to it and they will often bet that you won't have the, the, the gumption, the strength or the resources to even litigate over that contract when they breach it. So even when you got one, it's not perfect. Um, and listen, you can't go through life trusting nobody because then you do nothing, you meet nobody and you get nothing done. Um, but if you can bring things to a full contract, then, then you ought to. And that guy, that plaintiff, as far as I'm concerned, I wasn't convinced by their arguments at all. And by the way, neither was the judge. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're being very harsh on, you know, I the am. heartthrob of my generation, James <laughs> Vanderbeek. I mean, he's no Dick Cavett. He's no Dick he's Cavett. He's no <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So. I mean, I'll say this uh, when it comes to contracts and the law. Certainly, when something is a written sheet of paper that people sign and the document says the parties intend to be bound, that's a contract. But yeah. things less than that can be a contract, too. If I say to they you, can. Gideon, I will offer you $100 for you to come and paint my house on Wednesday, and you say, I accept, that's a contract. We have we have clear meeting of the minds on what the terms are. I made an offer. You accepted that offer. You don't need a written piece of paper that we all signed to make that a contract. What, what we look for in the law is whether there's a meeting of the minds, whether the two parties clearly came to an accord on the subject matter and essential terms of the contract, or were there things still being negotiated or was it clear in the you know, process that things weren't binding? So what ultimately hurt James Vanderbeek in this case is that there were emails being circulated back and forth that had term sheets that specifically said, this is non-binding. And so the evidence was pretty clear that they were still negotiating. So the advice I give uh, to people who get into this situation is if you don't intend to be in a contract, make that clear yeah if you totally. intend to be in a contract make totally. that clear leave no room for ambiguity and doubt what i mean by that is if you don't intend to be in a contract yet in all of your email messages make clear you know we're still negotiating i use the phrase when i write to people 
we're reserving rights, which means, you know, yep. we're not binding ourselves to anything. None of this is final and binding until we actually sign a written agreement. Put lots of information in there, lots of words in there, so the other side completely understands that you are not binding yourself to anything until there's a signed final document. Similarly, well, if you do intend to be bound, if you both sides do intend for a written document to be a binding agreement, make that clear in the contract. You know, every contract I write will always have the phrases in it, the parties, comma, intending to be bound, comma, hereby agree as follows. And there will also be a line in the contract that specifically says this contract is binding on the parties and their heirs, successors, and, succeed, and assigns. Either way, whether you don't want to be in a deal or you do want to be in a deal, make that completely unambiguous so you don't end up in these nebulous situations where one party might think they're in a contract, one party doesn't, and then you go to court. Like in this, in a case like this, like, yeah, Sirius XM won, and so that's good, but the fact that they even got into this situation mm. is kind of a blunder. Like, the fact that the fact that they even got sued means they're spending money on attorneys, they're fighting a lawsuit. And so the more that you can make it completely unambiguous, hey, hey, James Vanderbeek, I know that we're sending you onboarding emails right now. And I know that we said things like, hey, it sounds like we have a deal. Just so you understand, James, this we do not intend to be bound until we sign a final agreement. That way there is no yeah. room for doubt. The other thing is specificity. Be specific. If you and I, if, to extend your example, if you say, hey, Gid, I'm going to pay you a hundred bucks, come paint my house. And then you send me the hundred bucks on PayPal, but I don't show up for nine months. Okay. You know, is that a breach of the contract? And then you, we can sit and fight about what, what, what a reasonable third, you know, whether that's reasonable or not or whatever. But at the end of the day, Every time you lack specificity in the emotions of them, and man, I've done it a thousand times. If I, I we could, we could do nine shows on all my, okay, um, and all of them, almost all of them, emanate from emotions, from wanting your house painted so badly, from wanting the record deal, from wanting the playlist on Spotify, from wanting whatever. And so, yes, give me a hundred bucks to paint your house, but within two weeks, you know, you know, who's going to pay for the paint? Um, yep. And so on. And so, yes, of course, Ryan, emails can constitute contracts, verbal communications can be contracts. But I would submit to you and anybody listening again that in the absence of great specificity, um, whether those things are contracts or whether they even speak to the real issues of the relationship is always tenuous, man. So to me, it's a pain in the neck. But get there on the contract and get there on the specificity. Otherwise, you're going to get a lot of stomach aches. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, what a wild uh, situation you could put yourself in without that specificity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And but in closing, uh, the real question is the real issue is I can't believe people are getting paid 700 grand to be on Sirius XM. I know I'll split 350. I get 350. You get the other 350. <laughs> Oh wait, you have a producer. Uh, I don't. Know. Yeah, we'll cut. We'll cut producer Laura did. We'll, yeah, yeah, she can have some money. I mean, we'll 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 have to figure out how to split seven hundred k three ways. That sounds like mm -hmm. some really complicated math that I'm not going to try to figure out right now because everybody right. knows lawyers right. are bad at math. But right, right. Like we'll just tell SiriusXM to just make it a clean nine hundred k because that's easily divisible between you, me, and producer Lauren. Yes. And we'll do the episodes that uh, apparently James Vanderbeek isn't doing for them anymore. Yes. You are a, <laughs> you are a business visionary, and I'm just, I'm just going to ride on your coattails. All right. We got about five or six minutes left, Gideon. And with the time we have, I want to quickly do a segment that you propose that I think is a great idea for a segment. Uh, we are calling it Gideon King's two-word trigger. So you proposed this to me over email. You said you wanted to do like a word association game where I give you one word about the music industry or the music business or the entertainment business or just, you know, maybe business in general. And then you give me a two-word response of how you associate that word. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about what caused that two-word response. Wow. And uh I'm pretty wow. excited to see where this goes. This seems like a great way to close out. I didn't the show think you person. were actually. I didn't think you were actually going to do it, but now that we're here, let's do it, man. We're here. No, there's, we're it's here. too late to I'm go here. back now. We didn't have back. enough yeah. Dick Cavett references to finish <laughs> out the show, so we got some time gonna, left. I'm never going to hear the end of that. I know it's fine. I live with it. It's cool. It's cool. <laughs> I Bruce Moore, do you have? Do we have music for the two-word trigger game? 
Oh, okay. Oh. We have fake drum. We got, we got fake drum machine music. I like it. Also, before we close the show today, Lord, can you pull up a picture of Dick Cavett, please? So we can all this is so we can all see it. And just like anyway, so here we go. I got some one word single words for you. You're gonna give me your two word response of like all word right. association. Ready? Yeah. First one. NFT. Scary future. Scary future. Yeah. I'm, I mean, interesting. I mean, as a uh, as an investor, like, have you gotten into this space at all? Are you intrigued by it at all? Or are you running away from it? Man, I'm constantly looking at it. I'm constantly tempted, but I haven't actually taken a bite out of the apple yet. And it hasn't taken a bite out of me yet, but one of the two will happen. <laughs> Next one. Labels. Still powerful oh see you, you gave a very diplomatic positive answer there knowing that our label executive michael malden still in the room <laughs> that was still that was well played dude the labels they still own the world baby and and we pretend they don't but man they do uh, i know I, I own a streaming company okay i'm the biggest shareholder in audio mac which michael has heard of if he's still hanging out backstage and the labels man the labels are uh they are the ass we need to kiss they still run the show for sure. Absolutely. All right. Here's what I'm afraid to ask you, but I think we have to do it knowing who our audience, knowing who we're doing this with. Your next word, Gideon, swift. World domination. Oh, very profound. Okay. And I know you have a crush on her. I have a crush on Dick Cavett. You clearly have a crush, <laughs> you, you clearly have a crush on Taylor Swift. So, Where's yeah. that Dick Cavett picture, producer Lord? Don't do we it, don't need to see it. Not if you're my friend. Wow. Unbelievable. Look at that it's suit. It's unbelievable. It is oh, unbelievable. man. It's fine. I mean. I will get you back. Lauren. I, I mean. Thought, Lauren, forget Ryan. I thought we were friends, Lauren. Hey, this one. As I said, right? Everything's contracts. There's no real friends. I mean, some people would say that that green tie and that, that plaid suit is out of style, but not this guy. I think it's coming back. Unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> next one. Streaming. Plastic world. Oh. That's All right. Next one. VC. VC as in venture capital? That's right. Do you oh. know another VC? No. A VC. Dangerous waters. Oh, what do you mean by that? Are you talking about like because of like how VC funding has dried up more recently? Bottom line. Or? Bottom line. There's a few VC firms that make money. The rest, the rest of the people in the world that put money in VC get blown away. Um, and it's just dangerous waters to think you can do it and to think you can identify it. And it's a monopoly. It's a few big players that really dominate VC in the world. And they make all the money and get all the real looks and all the real opportunities. And the rest, uh, the rest are like kids, you know, and their heads are jumping up and down outside the party. And you see them, but they're never really in the party. What do, you think of, what do you think of the opportunities for VC in the entertainment industry, particularly music tech, entertainment tech? Man, they're there. And people will put money into VC ideas and music and entertainment and tech. I've done it multiple times. I believe that I'm more of a loser than a winner. Um, but for some reason, I keep doing it. It's sexy. It's cool. It's fun. Um, maybe it's just like the same thing as people going to like Vegas, man. Like it's fun and it's and it's sort of like electric. But you know you're going to lose money. Well. It seems to me in a lot of ways, like the the metaphor of VC is kind of similar to the metaphor of record labels and how they invest, right? In a record label, for every one Alicia Keys or Destiny's Child, there's 10 or 20 artists that don't pan out. But the Alicia Keys or Destiny's Child pays for the 20 artists that don't pan out. And VC, it's probably the same thing, although it's more like probably one uber to 100 not ubers yeah it's a super man that's uh, I, i'm not even going to go there because it's a whole other show for us to discuss that <laughs> but you're right there's all kinds of weird like algorithms that you can attach to these different businesses but man it's super complex all right so we got complex. one more here that i know is just going to be a crowd pleaser and i know it's going to just just uh, really light uh gideon king up here last one auto tune <sighs> Oh, 
just accept it. <laughs> I thought the sigh on its own would have been good enough. <laughs> you know, auto tune is like the thing is in in you know, like as as Prince once said, the microphone is on. Meaning, auto tune is a fact of life. Like perfection is a new thing. Like guitars when they were built never had to be perfect. Artwork never had to be perfect. But now every song is perfectly compressed. Every song is 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 like is like digitally compressed and there are, it's all on the grid, meaning it's perfectly in the groove. And, and auto-tune is just another example. I use it all the time, okay? It's another example of correcting the inevitable humanity that's in any piece of artwork and almost just like clawing out the reality. But dude, if you don't auto-tune your shit and, and your music, people like people are going to be like what is that like that doesn't deserve to be on a playlist so you're just not going to hear a jvke song or a bad bunny song not auto-tuned period full stop that's just where we're at so just accept it not gonna lie gideon i really really enjoyed this segment this was all okay. kinds of fun we're gonna have to do all this right, again cool. all right let's do it our thanks to gideon king our thanks to michael malden producer lauren and dick cavett and all of our thanks to the viewers and listeners for checking us out on break the business we'll see you next week